This podcast may contain explicit language. Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast, the show that uses a unique grading style to redefine what the Greatest Movies are. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. Tonight we apply our patent-pending Stanley rubric to Slapshot from 1977, directed by George Roy Hill, written by Nancy Dowd, starring Paul Newman and Struther Martin. However, quickly before we get to the show... Next week, we will be discussing, oddly enough, possibly one of the best Adam Sandler movies and one with a lot of sentimental value for yours truly, The Waterboy, directed by Frank Karachi, written by Tim Hearley, and Adam Sandler, starring Adam Sandler, Kathy Bates, and Henry Winkler. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. You can also email the show at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com to sign up for our newsletter or find us on Instagram, Twitter, and now TikTok at the handle at gmotepodcast. And as always, please like, follow, rate, and review the show on whichever podcast platform you use. We would really appreciate it. Okay, so Dad, let's turn our attention to Slapshot. What is your relationship to this movie? I'm trying to think. I, I'm pretty sure I saw it on HBO for the first time, probably in the early 80s. Um, so I didn't see it at the theater, obviously, and thought it was a funny film um, and kind of uh, made it a ritual to watch about at least once a year. I think I tried to show it at least to the male exchange students we had, simply because I thought uh, it kind of showed a side of American culture that they don't always see overseas. Okay, I guess I'm confused by that. One, I don't remember that ever being the case. And two, what exactly about this is Americana that you can't see overseas? Well, it's, it's small town sports, the the fighting and such. I just think that the way that hockey itself at that time was more about fighting and violence than it was about the skating and the scoring, per se, and uh, um, I think it kind of permeated through. I mean, this is something that really was not well known about the game or the sport itself outside of Canada and the United States at that time. That just the small town, you know, they they think of the the NHL and and the Olympics and such, but to realize that there are these semi-pro minor league hockey teams that are dotted across the country and across Canada is just kind of unique. I don't think that they necessarily would have thought that these existed. Okay. I have no relationship to this movie. I think I might've seen it once straight through ever. So realistically, I think other than kind of knowing the rough outline of the story, This was more like a first viewing for me than most other movies we've covered. And I had some laughs, but this is kind of a strange movie for a sports movie because I really don't think it's much of a sports movie. It doesn't have quite the montages. It doesn't have a lot of the sports clips or sports highlights that we've come to define. The coach doesn't give any great sweeping 
halftime or pregame speeches. There's no great musical medley that kind of plays in the background and gives you this like elevated sports nature to it. It kind of really feels stripped down from a lot of things that we've defined as sports movies before then. And kind of feels to me a little bit, although you could say that some of those aspects were in, in Rocky, but it feels a little bit kind of like Rocky in that sense. It's about the same year, I guess. How can you say that he didn't have any speech? Old time hockey. We're going to do old time hockey. That's the extent of his speech, but that is a speech. I suppose, but it's from a rather <laughs> uninspiring figure. <laughs> Like, honestly, I've been on this program before and I've said, I just like Paul Newman. He's always charismatic and I like every role he's been in. Until I watched this movie, I I just find almost no redeeming quality at all. Uh, Yeah, but this was minor league hockey in the 70s. This is what it was like. This this came as close to reality as possible. You, You know, it was like, it, it was the old joke in the 70s that I went to a hockey game the other night and a game broke out in the middle of the fight. So what would you say this movie's actually about? It's the struggles of life in general because we have one guy who um, is struggling in his marriage. We have a middle-aged guy who's losing it and is at the tail end of his career. We have... Uh, another guy who is just basically in it because he's some sort of like sex addict. We have a goalie who uh, can barely put a sentence together in English, um, who just wants to play but doesn't know what he's doing most of the time outside of being in the goal. It's a collection of guys who are struggling to hold on to a dream that is never going to be completely fulfilled but they're trying to do it as best they can and to enjoy the sport or game that they loved and just going through the the daily activities of of performing in that sport. I really think this is emblematic of this late 70s period that was post-Vietnam because to me, this movie is an identity movie. Everybody is trying to hold on to what they think of themselves and what semblance they have left for the life they've invested in so far up to that point. Reggie doesn't want to stop being a hockey player and a coach because it's the only thing he's ever known. And Braden doesn't want to give in to the violence because he's been a damn good hockey player. And he thinks that if he gives into the violence, then he has absolutely no shots at ever being the type of pro he wants to be in. You just continue right down the line all the way to the wives, the wives, figure themselves that I'm going to marry a pro hockey player. And then they realize that once they get to that point, that they're really just alone because those guys are constantly on the road or in the rink. And so they end up either finding camaraderie amongst themselves or in their own loneliness. Yes, I I agree. And I think that's what I'm talking about with the struggles of life. It's, It's not the life they wanted. It's the life they have. Yeah, and I think it's coming to grips with that. It, I mean, if I were to give kind of an elevator pitch for this movie, it's it's a midlife crisis movie where one guy is losing everything that he's staked his identity on, so he desperately tries to save it. And as far as 70s movies goes, 
It's kind of a lower stakes, much less dark and half as long version of the deer hunter that would win best picture the next year. I have struggles of life as told on a hockey rink. I think that's painting it too simplistically because I think there's a lot of depth to this movie under the surface. And that could be entertaining as far as like a, a mental exercise. I mean, when I usually think of sports movies, it's something that's usually easy or light watching as opposed to something that's you, you've got to take a lot of bites out of. This is kind of both. I mean, I will admit the first time the Hansons step onto the ice and just absolutely go bonkers, I'm or yucking it up with the best of them. But the rest of this movie, whenever Reggie's trying to pull off some long con, it just seems sad and desperate. Uh, well, you have to admit the the uh, scene where one of the Hanson brothers just skates past the uh, opposing team's bench and he just sticks him on the back of the head as he's going down, down the ice. Just pump, 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 pump. That is uh, precious. I don't know. There, there's such a absurdity to it that I was actually laughing a lot more than I thought I would when I started the movie. <laughs> uh, I, I, uh, well, and we'll get to that, I'm sure. But this, the scene where they they find all of the biggest criminals and hockey goons they can, and they announce things about them. I just, every time I hear that, I just start laughing because it's, it's so over the top, but yet, (laughs) but you know, this is kind of what hockey was. I mean, it was one of the reasons why hockey had a very narrow following in the early seventies and was possibly, you know, other than in Canada, was going to have some difficulty finding uh, an audience in the United States. So they, they tried to clean it up in the early 80s, and they tried to make it more uh, about skill and scoring and such. And I think ultimately the great one is what saved the sport, at least in the United States. All right, so let's get more into the background of this movie. Do you have a plot summary ready for us? I do. Reggie Dunlop, Paul Newman, is the player coach of the Charlestown Chiefs, a minor league hockey team in rural Pennsylvania. The Chiefs are a losing team with minimal fan support. When the local mill is announced to be closing, the future of the Chiefs becomes even more bleak. Dunlop desperately tries to rally his last place team enough to try and force a sale of the team. He realizes that violence and aggressive tactics will win back hometown fans. When Dunlap relents and allowing the wildly aggressive and increasingly violent Hanson brothers into games, the Chiefs go on a winning streak by completely beating up their opponents. Nevertheless, can Dunlap save the Chiefs and his career? Thank you. Cast for this movie, George Roy Hill as director, Nancy Dowd as writer, Paul Newman as Reggie Dunlop, Struther Martin as Joe McGrath, Michael Antkeen as Ned Braden, Jennifer Warren as Francine Dunlop, Lindsay Krauss as Lily Braden, Jerry Hauser as Dave Killer Carlson, Andrew Duncan as Jim Carr, Jeff Carlson as Jeff Hansen, Steve Carlson as Steve Hansen, and David Hansen as Jack Hansen, Yvonne Barrett as Denny Lemieux, Alan Nichols as Johnny Upton, Brad Sullivan as Morris Mo Wanchuk, Stephen Mandillo as Jim Ahern, Yvonne Ponton as Jean-Guy Drouin, 
Matthew Cowles as Charlie, Catherine Walker as Anita McCambridge, Melinda Dillon as Suzanne Hanrahan, M. Emmett Walsh as Dickie Dunn, Swooshy Kurtz as Shirley Upton, Paul D'Amato as Tim Dr. Hook McCracken, Ronald L. Dockin as LeBrun, Guido Tenisi as Billy Charlebois, Jean Rosario Tetreo as Bergeron, Christopher Murney as Tommy Hanrahan, Blake Ball as Gilmore Tuttle, and Ned Dowd as Ogie Oglethorpe. Recognition for this movie, Slapshot was a moderate hit upon release, grossing $28 million over its theater run, which placed it at 21 among movies released in 1977. In the years since its initial release, Slapshot has come to be regarded as a cult classic. Critical reevaluation of the film continues to be positive. In 1998, Maxim Magazine named Slapshot the best guy movie of all time, above such acknowledged classics as The Godfather, Raging Bull, and Newman's own Cool Hand Luke. Entertainment Weekly ranked the film number 31 on their list of top 50 cult films. And in the November 2007 issue of GQ, Dan Jenkins proclaimed Slapshot the best sports film of the past 50 years. Slapshot holds an 83% rating on Rotten Tomato and a Metacritic score of 61. Did you know? Paul Newman had stated on many occasions that he had more fun making this film than on any other he had starred in, and that it remained his favorite of his own films until his death. Did you know? Bruce Boudreaux, head coach of the NHL's Vancouver Canucks, appears in the film wearing number seven for the Hyannisport Presidents. Boudreaux was one of several players from the Johnstown Jets minor league hockey team that were used as extras. Did you know? Reggie's apartment in this movie is the actual real-life apartment of Bruce Boudreaux, who, at the time, played for the Johnstown Jets, the team the Chiefs were modeled on. Did you know? Paul D'Amato's character, Tim Dr. Hook McCracken, served as the model for the face of Marvel Comics mutant superhero Wolverine. Did you know? Though decried by much of the NHL upon release, the movie is still a staple on NHL buses and team charters. It's not uncommon for NHL players born years after the movie's release to name it as their favorite movie. In locker rooms, players refer to reporters who write an untrue rumor with conviction as Dickie Dunn. <laughs> Did you know? The swearing in the film by 1977 standards was considered so foul, advertisements contained an additional warning underneath the R rating. Certain language may be too strong for children. Did you know? The championship trophy presented at the end of the movie was, in reality, the Lockhart Cup, which was representative of the North American Hockey League Championship. To this day, it sits in the basement recreation room of Danny Belisle, where it has become a flower pot. With that, we'll take our first break, and we will be right back. Welcome back. Thank you for rejoining us. All right. Dad, best performance for you? Paul Newman, hands and above. He uh, <laughs> he was funny. He was uh, jocular. He was, um, I don't know, I just thought he was, he was the movie. I mean, everything came right through him and everything played off him. So he was by far the big star, and he did everything to show it. I think they tried to load the movie onto his back, and unfortunately, I think he's so desperately unlikable 
in this movie that I didn't nominate him for any of the awards. I went out of my way to make sure he did not meet any of my awards for this one. As much as I like Paul Newman, I found his desperation rather uh, appalling. And so (laughs) I went with Uh, what I thought were the most appealing characters in this particular movie. I could have maybe gone with Killer Carlson on this one, but I went with the Hanson brothers. Jeff Carlson, Steve Carlson, Dave Hanson. Okay. Really, the the movie changes a demeanor the minute they hit the ice. Yeah. Up until that point, it seems like everybody's just depressed all the time. They're from this small town that's losing all of their jobs. They really have nowhere to go. They're a last place team. They're closing up and nobody believes in them, including their own coach and their own GM let alone the owner, and the fans are completely hostile to them. And so the minute the Hansons step onto the ice, start turning everything into a a wrestling match, you know, that changes the entire demeanor of the movie. No, I I understand. Um, There's a reason why the Hanson brothers still make personal appearances. They're the most iconic characters from this movie. Best secondary performance. George Roy Hill. I liked the pacing of the film. I liked the camera angles and such that he was using so that it it made you feel like you were actually there and on the ice at times. Um, I I thought he did a nice job of blending in some of the stuff. Could have been difficult or more cringeworthy and trying to tone it down a bit so that it was still funny but not too much over the top at times where it could have been just absolutely. And I'm, I'll get to that when we start talking about uh, classicness. I think one of the most important decisions he particularly made about this movie was casting people who could actually play hockey as opposed to trying to teach actors how to play hockey. He chose hockey players who could maybe act. And it gives this movie an extra leg of authenticity because Other than Paul Newman, these are a bunch of no-named people. But similarly, not quite the same, but in kind of the same vein, I went with Nancy Dowd, the writer of this, primarily because, and this will come back again when we get to the Stanley rubric, that I thought this was as authentic to minor league hockey as a movie we already discussed, Bull Durham, is to minor league baseball. Yeah, I can agree with you there. I I do agree that this is really... uh quite on point for what minor league uh, hockey was. Well, and having been to at least a couple of minor league games, the fans are often kind of sparse. They're interwoven into the fabric of the arena as opposed to filling the seats. They're really crying for big hits than they are for anything of technical skill because they know that the guys that are there probably don't have enough skill to really wow them that way. And so it just kind of has this feeling of malaise that I don't think had somebody not written it about something they knew, you would have gotten the right sense for. But I also think there were a couple of other characters that she wrote for very well and unfortunately pretty much hit them on the head. I would expect that there aren't too many other movies that are commenting on the players' wives as much as this movie is. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can understand, and I see your point. 
I, I will add that Newman had commented in an interview I had seen uh, online with Gene Shalit from NBC that he loved this movie in part because he thought the writing was so good. I think it's just has a lot more to say beyond this is a hockey team that somehow found success. Like the normal sports movie tradition of this would be essentially that he pulls them out of the gutter, sells tickets, and then finds a new owner or moves the team to Florida and saves them that way. This movie seems more realistic to not only the time period, but just sports in general, that the owner still is going to go through with the sale and his only means of hanging on are he found another minor league hockey team in Minneapolis to coach. (laughs) Yeah. Everybody's got to move on with their lives, essentially. Most charismatic. I have Newman, so obviously you don't, but I I just think Newman is such a star that uh, he just eats the screen up when he's on. I, I really have a hard time adjusting to Newman in this movie for whatever reason. There's there's just some type of block that makes him so unlikable for me. I went with Killer Carlson, to be honest, and uh, I'm trying to, Jerry Hauser. Oddly enough, for a guy who it seems like his only motivation is to make his coach happy, he seems the most likable, even though he may be the most tragic okay and every time he gets beat up and he still is out there trying to fight i mean he's getting his lip quite literally sewn back on and he comes back out to throw more punches something of that is somehow endearing to me and i'm not sure why but he's just all effort and all heart best scene the nominees are the opening interview your wife's a lesbian Moving to Florida, the first Hanson Brothers game, $100 Bounty, Anita McCambridge, Old Time Hockey, and Braden's Ice Capade Striptease. Did I miss any? No, I think that covers them. At least the important ones. Yeah, I skipped around a little bit, but I think for the most part, this was this only had certain sparse scenes that were important to it. So out of those, what do you think was the best scene? Uh, Letting loose the Hansons. I mean, that's my favorite scene, so I'll I'll go there, but is that the best scene? I'm Honestly, I... It's the scene that dominates the film. Yes. It's it's the pivoting scene. It changes the course of the film. It makes the film into almost two parts and really changes the directory of the... the uh, the direction of the film significantly. How can you not claim that that's the best scene? Well, I could throw two others in for potential best, and that would be the strip tease at the end, or I really like the opening interview where he's just <laughs> pointing out all of the fouls in hockey and abusing the announcer. <laughs> yeah, well, I understand, but I don't know how that's the best scene. All right. Uh, yeah, I'll grant you. I don't. I don't think I could argue my way past it. Probably. So that was my favorite scene as well. So what is your favorite? Uh, letting loose the Hansons, because, like I said, just the, the scene where he skates by the bench and just 
plunks all the, the uh, opposing team in the head with his stick. Every time I see that, I laugh. I just, I would love to see that in real life. I just really would, because it would be hilarious. It feels almost like certain scenes from Dodgeball where they just gang up on the weaker ones. And yes. those guys just flying around. Absolutely. It's ganging up on the the weaker player like Winston. But for me, the most indelible moment is the striptease. Okay, it is indelible, but I, I go back, which is just the announcing of the uh, the thugs that they they bring in to play them in that game. I mean, that whole championship game, the first half, where it's just a just a bloody mess, and then or after the first period, and and then uh, coming back out and and the ultimate, the strip tease. Michael Onking, by the way, was an actor before this and was an actor after this, but he got the part and primarily played college hockey at Rhode Island. No, uh, New Hampshire. New Hampshire? Okay. My mistake, but yes. All right, let's take another quick break and we'll be right back. Welcome back. Thank you for rejoining us. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Yes, we do, unfortunately, but um, Bobby Rydell passed away. He was an American singer and actor. He was the lead while he was a key player in Bye Bye Birdie with Anne Margaret. He played Birdie, actually. Birdie, or Bye Bye Birdie was based on part on Elvis Presley getting drafted into the Army. Dick Van Dyke was loosely based on Colonel Tom Parker, who was Elvis's agent. Anyway, Rydell played Birdie and uh, did most of the numbers, did most of the singing. He uh, had 34 top 100 hits at that time and sold more than 25 million albums uh, during his career. We also lost Estelle Harris, a longtime actress. She was in Stand and Deliver, Curb Your Enthusiasm, and she's best known for being George Costanza's mother on Seinfeld. She also voiced... Mrs. Potato Head, throughout the Toy Story films. Except the original. She only showed up in two. Okay. I thought she was in one, too, but okay. No, two was where they really expanded the character list. I mean, that's where they got Jesse and they got Bullseye for Woody, and they expanded to Mrs. Potato Head, and they, they really kind of filled out the character roster. The first one is really stripped down, but I will eventually get to that movie for uh, sure. one of these shows. Yeah, the interesting thing was, is, um, and I didn't realize that Toy Story 4, they actually wrote the lines based on recordings they had of Don Rickles, who was Mr. Potato Head. So, uh, but Stell Harris and he would actually voice together uh, in order to get some of the lines so that they sounded with a certain level of comedy or comedic timing. Uh, and then uh, Nehemiah Persoff uh, was 102. This is an actor that if you'll go, oh, that guy. You look at his picture and you realize all the stuff he had done. He played a cab driver in On the Waterfront. He was a uh, key figure in Some Like It Hot. He was in Yentl playing Barbara Streisand's father. He was in Twins, the Ivan Reitman film with... Uh, Arnold and uh, Danny DeVito. 
as well as being a part of Twilight Zone, Star Trek, The Next Generation, and Wonder Woman. Yeah. His list of accomplishments and shows, I mean, he did everything from westerns to comedies to sci-fi. And I'm somewhat familiar with Bobby Rydell's music, maybe as a bit of an offshoot. I do actually enjoy occasionally putting on some of that 50s, 60s kind of crooner music, and some of his tracks have snuck into my playlists occasionally. So that's an interesting one. I guess I hadn't really kept tabs on where he was in life, but uh, he apparently had had a double organ transplant in like 2012. So he'd been kind of failing health for a while, but he became in the last, I guess, decade of his life here, uh, a big advocate for organ donation. And he had made some big pushes there. Estelle Harris is primarily known for her voice more than anything else. So I think the fact that one of her biggest claims to fame, at least for people of my generation, is for her voice work in the Toy Story movies. So, and uh, I really don't necessarily recognize Nehemiah or or, uh, Persoff just generally, but I'm sure if pointed out, given the amount of things and his overall filmography, that you probably could pick him out very easily over a number of different films over the years. So three storied careers, we're going to miss them all. We appreciate them here with a moment of silence in their honor, respecting the work and contributions that they made to the arts. Thank you. All right, then let's move to best funniest lines. I don't have a lot of nominees, but the first one that I have, Jim Carr. Oh, this young man has had a very trying rookie season with the litigation, the notoriety, his subsequent deportation to Canada, and that country's refusal to accept him. Well, I guess that's more than most 21-year-olds can handle. Ogie, Oglethorpe. Most of the lines are not one line, but they're dialogue. And sometimes, you know, the multiples have to be done. Reggie Dunlop, she underlines the fuck scenes for you? Jesus, she underlined the fuck scenes for you. She must worship the ground you walk on. Ned Braden, they teach you how to underline in college. Reggie, not the fuck scenes they don't, Braden. You got to learn to put out more. You know what I mean? So that was one of my three nominees. The only other one I have, Tim McCracken. Dunlop, you suck cock. Reggie, all I can get. Jim Carr, Ned. What's a young man of your background still doing playing professional hockey? Ned, I hate my father. Jim Carr, is that right? Ned, that's what I said, isn't it? Isn't that ultimately what it comes down to? I hate my father, I hate my mother. Trying to make a larger commentary there, Dad? Oh, really? I wonder why. So I have this exchange, which I always remember. Reggie. And remember when I went up to your room afterwards and we were, and you were dressed in chick's clothes, you know, you had on this black bra with tassels and you were dancing in front of a mirror with that kind of zebra jockstrap? McGrath, bitch. Reggie, remember how I screamed at you when you started coming on to me and you said, Jesus, stop it, Joe. I'm ashamed of you. McGrath, God damn you. Reggie, I want to tell you, I forgot the whole thing. Years have passed. Now I'm sexually liberated. I don't care who was a fag no more. I mean, who cares? It's natural, isn't it? It's all around us. Who's the owner, Joe? I just 
always remember that line. Just the visual image of Struther Martin in a zebra jockstrap has just been like permanently burned into my into my memory. I just can't let it go. It's like <laughs> I'm out of nominees. Do you have any left? Uh, let me just quickly look through my notes here. Uh, yes, I do have one left. Jim Carr. Andre the Poodle Lassier. Defense. Andre, as you know, has been living in semi-seclusion in northern Quebec ever since the unfortunate Danny Pratt tragedy. And from mile 40, Saskatchewan, where he now runs a donut shop, number 10, former penalty minutes record holder for the years 1960 to 68, inclusive Gilmore Tuttle. Ready to go to the rubric? Oh, yeah. All right, let's see what old Stanley has for us this week. Legacy's up first. I'll just go first. The Industry, I gave it a four because critics have mostly come around in this movie and consider it a classic and, frankly, a classic sports movie. Those are two separate things in my mind. And I also gave it a four for the audience because while it may have a cult following now, especially among the hockey crowd, it's still a limited swath of the general public. It's also not on the tip of most non-industry people's tongues as a great sports movie. So I think this hits a certain portion of the crowd, but not everybody. And so I ended up at an eight. I'm just a little bit lower. Industry, I also had a four. And I'll just comment that I happened to find a a piece that Gene Siskel had written for the Chicago Tribune at the time where he absolutely hated the film. But yet then when he went back at the end of the year and started ranking his films for the Academy Awards, he actually had this like the one of the five best films of the year. So I went with a four for that. For the public, because this is a cult following, it's not widely known or thought about. So I went with a three. Uh, I think it's very prevalent within a certain element, but it's not widely known or thought of in the public for that reason. So, seven. Would you uh, help me with the math on this one? Okay. You were at eight? I was. Okay. I think it's... uh, Just a second. got to take off my shoes so I can use my toes. 7.5. Okay. Impact significance. Moderate success... Decent but not glowing reviews. One of the last big Paul Newman movies. Its impact seemed bigger later than in the initial moment. So I went with three for the industry and two for the audience for a five overall. I think it had a little bit bigger impact in the public uh, just by the fact that it ranked as highly as it did in, I mean, 21 and 1977 was nothing to necessarily sneeze at. I went with a 2.5 for that and for the industry because it did get some good reviews. I went with a 3.5 for 6. Do you want to do the math on this one too? No, I'll, I'll let you. Okay, it's a 5.5 then. Novelty. I gave this an extra half point over a similarly accurate depiction of minor league sports that we gave Bull Durham because it also has a larger commentary on the mood of the 70s that I've been hinting at throughout the course of this 
particular episode. I think it had a sense of the, okay, we just came out of Vietnam. We just had Watergate. What now as a country do we have? We're past the 200 year mark. And what exactly are we supposed to do with democracy now when we're losing our jobs, inflation is starting to go up, and there's not much left for us to do? So I think it captures a spirit of a time and place. And unless you have the historical perspective, you may not quite glom onto that, but I ended at an eight. Oh, I, I, I'm, I'm higher than you. I can't think of, first of all, of another film that involved hockey. And I think this was really the first film that kind of portrayed minor league sports. Uh, it also came in at a time when you were starting to see the decline of the steel industry. You were seeing uh, a lot of, um, of what was going on in hockey in general as far as violence and fighting. I went with a nine because I just couldn't see or think of anything that was quite as unique as this film. I almost went with a 9.5 simply because I couldn't think of that much that was there. But just the fact that I think the film ultimately is about just coming to terms with your life, uh, not turning out exactly the way you want. I had to go down from 9.5 to nine because I think that aspect of the film had been done before. You make some good points there, and I actually will match your nine, thinking about it. I think I made it too comparatively easy for myself to just say it's Bull Durham for hockey, but you are correct that it is unique as a hockey movie, and it's at least 10 years before that other movie, so it has to have some novelty points just on that backing. So I'll raise mine to a nine, and that makes it a fairly easy math. Nine average score between us. Classicness, your category. Ooh. The homophobia. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. You could not do this film in this way now. Even though this, you know, if you try to do it now, it's going to be a period piece of the 70s and what took place. Yeah, because it wouldn't be inclusive enough to a complete industry that welcomes with open arms its LGBTQ allies. Yeah. So, I mean, I had to give it a four. I, you know, the fact that it talked about the wives in a large part, it talked about what it was like to be on the road. I couldn't give it any lower than that for that reason. You know, the significant nature of the females in in the um, movie made it at least a four, but the homophobia was way over the top, and uh, I had to give it major marks down for that. And I agree with you. I think there are a lot of dated parts of this movie. When we talk about it captures the mood of the 70s, well, that's 50 years ago. Like, how much are we really in tune with an audience that may be picking this movie up for the first time with what the mood of the 70s was after Watergate and after Vietnam and during the Carter administration. You know, that's something for your generation, but it's not particularly for mine. Dunlop is one of the sleaziest guys you will ever meet. I don't think that particularly <laughs> well. It's so off-putting to me every time he hits on Braden's wife, and I still don't understand exactly what the fuck he was doing. It, that, that whole 
relationship between the three of them makes almost no sense to me at all during the course of this movie. Women were unfortunately depicted pretty accurately as far as what the hockey wives go in this movie. I don't want to say make such a broad generalization as to their attitudes or personalities, but you got to imagine that the life of a hockey wife was depicted at least pretty close to accurately in how this movie was, given that it was written by the sister of a hockey player. I think at least some of that gets some accuracy points, but nevertheless, their agency is often compromised in this movie by the power of their hockey husbands that often was taken away from them as a result of just being a bystander. So I can't really say that that was a power move in their favor, even though it's somewhat accurate. I also think there are some plot holes in this that'll come up in remaining questions, but you you addressed it before. The biggest issue with this movie is how they treat gay people in hindsight. The term fag, the term dyke, are regularly used throughout this movie. They joke about people sucking cock on a regular. They talk about cross-dressing as a means to basically bully somebody into getting information that they want. I mean, it's all over the course of this movie that this is somehow derogatory, and it's maybe a sign of the time, but an accurate reflection of the feelings towards gay people at that time that just does not age well. The one saving grace for this was the accuracy of minor league hockey at the time, as well as how it depicts the 70s, but I don't think that can completely save it. So I didn't go quite as low as your four. Like I said, on numerous occasions, I started a seven. I ended up taking four points off for all of the things I mentioned. I gave it an additional two for the accuracy that it had toward minor league hockey. The fact that some of the humor still holds up comparatively to several other movies of the time that as far as I'm concerned, and the fact that it was pretty accurate to the mood of the country at the time, I gave it an extra two points, so I ended at a five. Well, I'll just make one point, which is not only does it homophobic, (laughs) to use the term towards the Hanson of retard. Yeah. Is that one, but that's a good point. Yeah. That was another one that I I forgot to mention, but that kind of made me. Because uh, I lived in that time frame, and even at that point in time, that was not a term you were using in polite company. And yet we highlight it every time we talk about dodgeball. Yeah, I know. All right, let's take it to rewatchability then. I had a six. I'd be okay with watching this again. Oh, you but didn't I average could... it. Oh, excuse me. You're right. Uh, 4.5 for the classicness category on the average. But I have a 6 for rewatchability. I'd be okay watching this again at some point, but I could just as easily do without. Yeah, I went I went with a 7. 7 is about where I am. That That's kind of where I would watch a film about once a year because once a year I enjoy watching something. And uh, I'm not going to go way out of my way, but... I almost spent the extra dollar to buy it digitally on Amazon so that uh, I'd have it. And I'm like, nah. Then I watched it and I'm like, should have spent the dollar. Well, I spent the dollar. Okay. But it's a dollar difference. Why not? 
All right. So then for audience scores, we had an 84% for Rotten Tomato users and an 89% for Google users, giving us an 8.75. So to recap the categories, we had a 7.5 for Legacy, a 5.5 for Impact Significance, a 9 for Novelty, a 4.5 for Classicness, a 6.5 for Rewatchability, and an 8.75 for Audience Score, giving us a final total of 41.75. And that currently would place it in between The Artist and The Notebook. Those are three films that I would honestly uh, link. Very similar. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, okay. Yes, a silent film, a sappy rom-com, and a Paul Newman movie where he's hitting on all of his co-players' wives. Yeah, okay. All right, remaining questions. I assume the Hanson brothers went with them to Minnesota. Don't know. They could have turned pro. I don't know. Old-time hockey coach. So how did the Chiefs suddenly get into the championship game with only a six-game winning streak after they were in fifth place? Oh, there was more wins than that. They're not shown. There's no montage. There's nothing like an article spinning in a paper that says all of a sudden the Chiefs are in first place. Okay. They just all of a sudden there's a championship game and they're in it. Well, that's how most people view hockey in the United States anyway. It's like, oh, the season began. Oh, my team's is like in fourth place. Oh, they're in the Stanley Cup finals. Okay. You have any others? Nah. Okay, my final one. Who does Dunlop lie to more? The sports writer, the team, or himself? I'm going to leave that as being rhetorical. Because I'm not sure I can answer that. Exactly. All right, final thoughts for the week. Just uh, going to point out that uh, someone won our uh, Academy Award bet. Already mentioned it on last week's episode. And I'm just wondering when, uh, you know, that film will be watched. When I have time to get it in while also doing all of the other duties that I have. I see. I'm currently editing one of our episodes that we're going to use while we're on vacation. Ah. And I have to talk to you about filming the other two. Okay. Yes, I, uh... During our uh, the representatives meeting that I have on Monday mornings, I put it on the uh, TV in the uh, conference center and let everybody watch about five minutes of it before we started the meeting. And everybody wanted me to tell you that they're really sorry that you have to sit through this because they felt it was extremely painful to watch the first five minutes. Well, that's just what you really want to hear in a moment like this. You might actually enjoy it more if you watch the movie, Ed Wood, where Johnny Depp is actually doing the film, you know, so that it's more comedic. And then you might enjoy the film more because you're going to want to take it seriously. And there's nothing serious about any film that Ed Wood ever did. I'm going to basically apply the same rule that you told me at one time about going to law school. Just don't take it too seriously. By the end of it, 
I will still be one of the few people who can say I've watched an Ed Wood movie. Yes. Yes. Yes, you can. And I think there will be uh, very few that will be able to say that. You got to look at the upside of everything in life. Well, some people, when they drop their toast, it's butter side up. Some people, it's butter side down. So I really don't have any other final thoughts for the week. So, nope, I don't either. So good to be with you again. We will see you next week. Thank you for dropping by. Where are you headed, cowboy? Nowhere special. Nowhere special. I always wanted to go there. Next week, we will be discussing, oddly enough, possibly one of the best Adam Sandler movies and one with a lot of sentimental value for yours truly. The Waterboy, directed by Frank Karachi, written by Tim Hurley and Adam Sandler, starring Adam Sandler, Kathy Bates, and Henry Winkler. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that you can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com, sign up for our newsletter there, or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or now TikTok at the handle at Podcast. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Captivate FM.